I'm Pastor Ed. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, the lead pastor, Derek's on sabbatical. But when I, I preached on the section of Scripture that um, had to do with the dispersion of the church because it came at the heels of the persecution of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen. And then the, the Christians there, because of the persecution, they were forced out. Uh, they were dispersed into the then known world. And when, we, when I talked about that, I thought of you, Eric and Judith, uh, um, be, because you're... Uh, living out that scripture, not because of persecution, thank goodness, while that still happens, Christians and even non-Christians, we certainly see that in Ukraine, are dispersed because of persecution, but some believe that God has put it on their heart to fulfill that sense of dispersion, because what we discovered there in Acts, as they dispersed, not only was the message of the gospel proclaimed, but a lot of um, ignorance and, and myths and um, um, power struggles were being uh, disbanded because the gospel message, uh, ignorance no longer reigned. And I thought, wow, there's still a need for us as Christians, not because of persecution that happens, but because we're choosing to disperse and to let the gospel work its way in. And this summer, we're actually uh, in a book that was written to the dispersed church. This is James. This summer, we're going to be studying uh, the book of James. And it's viewed as possibly the oldest of the works in the New Testament, one or two. It, um, there are five different James in the Scripture, and it's largely held that the James that has authored this book that we're looking at during the summer was James, the brother of Jesus. And look here at James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings, so we see that uh, this is a different kind. James comes towards the back of the New Testament with Jude and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Peter, Hebrews. They often classify those books as general letters to the church. See, if you recall the letters that Paul has written, most of those are to a specific geographical location, to a specific church, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Philippi. This is to a dispersed group that's widespread throughout the then known world. Uh, James, as we look at it, it's general in the sense that the application is broad. As opposed to Paul often, like with the Corinthian church, is dealing with specific issues of that church. So it's general. Often, as you read James and as we study it, uh, it, it has a, a grammatical structure, kind of like Proverbs, with a lot of wisdom that is applicable to a general population, including us today. I titled my sermon, The Laboratory of Life. 
We are in the laboratory of life because it's preparation for the next. We are learning about the values of God's kingdom today that are born out of a transformed heart. We kind of subtitled our our time in James as a transforming faith. Because James helps us by putting specimens or life circumstances under a microscope so that we can see in the heart. Now, I I remember um, my introduction to the laboratories, particularly it was either junior or senior year in high school. You know, laboratories, you know, it it created a, a sense of excitement because there you have microscopes, Bunsen burners, scalpels, chemicals, scales. You have a variety of tools and they're used to examine and to reveal things that are not obvious by the naked eye. It helps take the unseen and it can become seen. It was great anticipation. We were heard about it for years that we were going to advance from dissecting worms to the more complex forms of frog. Ah, we, we were going to do it. Now, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like me and my buddies on the way to school went down to the uh, water-infested ditch along the railroad tracks and got our frog and brought it to school and killed No, these were already dead in formaldehyde. But we were going to get our hands on it and do the dissecting. Not just read about it. Not just look at pictures about or pictures depicting it. And not just watch a movie. But we were going to do it. It's in the lab that the frog dies, but learning comes alive. It's in the laboratory of life that learning in the classroom, that must happen, learning in the classroom comes alive in our hearts. Think of James as we go through it, kind of as a lab manual for today. So rather than you're having to wait for heaven, you can realize and increasingly begin to experience the transformation of your heart today. You can start incorporating kingdom values for the future kingdom that we read about in Revelations where there's a new heaven and a new earth and that we will reside with God. And he will walk with us like his original intent with Adam and Eve. And he has given us some tools today, and we're going to see some of these tools in James. We're going to look at one of them today that he has given us for the purpose of transforming our hearts. To be fully devoted to God. Today we're going to look at just one one tool, and that's trials. Trials. Uh, There's two in the passage of Scripture, but we'll just look at one, and that's trials. Look at verse James 1, 2. James 1, 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, 
Whenever you face trials of many kinds, that word I underline, whenever, it's not if, it's not maybe, whenever, you will have trials in this world, period. Expect trials, expect difficulties, expect challenges. It's normal to have trials. What is abnormal or something is wrong is when you do not have trials. A great philosopher said, life is like bumper cars. If you are in a bumper car, expect to get hit. Now imagine with me, just imagine, and use a little of your imagination with me. You know, I, I remember as a young kid always riding in the back seat, longing for the day that I could drive a car. And probably the first car I drove was a bumper car. You know, when I reached the height that my head was at least up to the line that allowed you to go on the ride because it was indicating that you could sit on the seat, you could put the strap around you, and still your feet could reach the pedal. And so, man, this was my chance, even though I was in such a weird controlled environment, it was my chance to have that control of being behind the wheel, stepping on a, a pedal to give it some uh, motion forward and directing it where I want it to go. I was excited. But then, the others kept bumping into me. Stop it! I just want, to, uh, I just want the experience of uh, driving this car and going from point A to point B. You are making it difficult for me. Stop it! And you know, the more frustrated I got, at the people bumping into me, I think it fueled them to do it more. It was just the opposite response that I wanted. I, that's sometimes how we live life. Uh, if you are alive, expect trials. That's normal. That's what this scripture is telling us. It's telling us here, you know, Christians, we need to wake up and make sure we have realistic expectations. We got to make sure our expectations for this life align themselves with what the scripture teaches. Sometimes for some of us, you know, we really wanted people to get converted, to come to Christ. And so we, we painted a certain picture. And sometimes that picture is skewed from real life. Scripture says you will have trials. But it says also to count it as joy. It's there for a purpose. It says whenever these trials come, whenever, these trials are not the kind that you can plan in advance for. These trials catch you unaware. You're going to work, and you get a flat tire. Your computer's not working like you want it to. Or you're having a relational problem. 
These trials blindside you. They catch you by surprise. But that's exactly the kind of trial you need because in that moment, it will teach you something dramatically about you and your heart. What God might be bringing to the surface that needs the transformation. And it also tells us there are many kinds of trials. Many kinds of trials. term used here is for like the colors in the world that there are just multiple far beyond you can name. That's the way trials are. And what a trial is for me may not be for you. A trial may be as simple as, you know, that last piece of chocolate cake was for me and somebody ate it. Yeah, doesn't that frustrate you, irritate you? Or you get a life-threatening health report. And you're facing an uncertain future. There are many kinds of trials. But regardless whether big or small, it's a tool for you. It's not the trial we see here in Scripture that will make or break you. But it's perseverance. Perseverance or the absence of it. The only thing a trial does, it provides an environment in which perseverance can grow. Trials build perseverance, it tells us here in Scripture. Your trials are tools in the lab because your response to them will give you feedback on what or whom your faith or confidence is placed in. If your faith is in anything other than God, your perseverance is limited. Look at verse 4. Actually, I'll begin with three. Because the test, know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Verse four. Perseverance must. I know you don't like it. I don't. You're exhausted. You're tired. You're fatigued. You can think of all the reasons you just want to quit. Perseverance must finish its work. So that, here's the goal. Even though it's tough, this is what you are after. Keep the uh, end in mind, what you're after, so that you would be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Complete, whole, not lacking in anything. Mature. This verse is not advocating striving for perfection, but for wholeness. Make wholeness your goal. See, what the Bible tells us, we are fragmented, we are fractured, we are divided. That is exactly what sin does. God uses trials, if we use them as a tool, to harness them, to develop perseverance. 
so that over time it breeds a wholeness. We hold out rather than give in for lesser things. We do not compromise and accept quick fixes. We don't give in to temporal pleasures or ego-satisfying symbols of power. Perseverance allows us to say no because then it's clear what we're saying yes to, something much greater. That's why idolatry is condemned in Scripture. We are called to love the Lord our God with our whole heart. A complete heart. That is to be our aim. However, now we live in the lab. Now we're living in the laboratory and we're seeing what is really true about ourselves. And we discover the fractures within our own life. That we have good days and bad days. Verses 5 through 8 describe really this experience in the lab of life today. If any of you lacks wisdom, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given him to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all he does. See, the goal in the lab of life and how we want to harness our trials is to increasingly move away from living a fractured life to increasingly move away from this uh, syndrome that James forewarns us is not in your best interest, double-mindedness, and move towards wholeness that is in sync with God. That's what holiness is, is to be set apart, fully devoted for God. We want to be moving in that direction. But doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is not in your best interest to stay there, to not benefit from that doubt and what is revealing to you. But the enemy of faith is unbelief. Doubt is important in the lab. That's what gets you to... Uh, Desire to get more information, to discover what is true, to dispel ignorance and falsehood. You can come to God with your doubts. James is writing to Christians, and you can imagine them being dispersed they come to Christ, these are largely Jewish uh, converts to Christ, living as uh, nomadic lives uh, in other countries, feeling like foreigners. You can imagine what their doubts would be. 
You can imagine what these are the people that James are writing to. The source of your doubts are significant. I'm talking to people here today because we are all over the map in terms of uh, our, our faith in God, in Jesus Christ. Your faith, uh, your doubts are significant because not all doubts are intellectual. It's not just an absence of information that creates these doubts. Doubts can be a sign of living a fractured life. And if you have the courage to look at them, they can help guide you to what is underneath them. What are these doubts are expressing about me that I need to address? What is important is that your faith is growing and doubt is diminishing. I think in, in terms of, uh, somebody said, like, uh, they use this example, uh, what, what chance is it that the Seattle Seahawks will win the Super Bowl this upcoming year? Okay, what percent would you give it? Okay, so say somebody says 51%. Does that constitute belief then? Even though there's still 49% of uncertainty, what if it's 75%? See, this is what we're called to do, is to see that our lives are on the right trajectory, that our faith in God, our, what some people will say, our God confidence is growing. That we are finding, we are moving from perhaps where you're sitting today and you have uh, 38% God confidence, that in a year from now, you'll discover that you are up to 52. I think we're naive to think it's all or nothing. Even in Scripture, we see great, great uh, uh, heroes of the faith Dealing with the issue of doubt. It's important to learn to hear what your doubts are saying and then work to resolve them. A lot of doubts are just emotional. A lot of doubts have to do with control and security. Use your trials to exercise perseverance, to deal with the doubts, to deal with your trials. Allowing your reaction to trials teach you what might be broken. Because again, we're interested not just in behavioral change, but transformed hearts. And out of a transformed heart, behaviors will change. In the staff meeting, uh, we talked about our approach to James. And we realized that because we know some of the issues that are going to come up and it will shine light on us, 
James will shine light on us because um, we'll deal with uh, topics like favoritism, the tongue, temptations. And our discussion was, well, we don't want you all, we don't want ourselves to feel so neg- negative like a heavy load. Like do, 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 and you're failing. You know, it seems to me there are two types of people in life. There are those who have an overactive conscience and those who have an underactive conscience. You know, that is on you. You know, like any scripture, you may feel bad and and woe is me, I don't measure up. Uh, um, and you take it negatively, and maybe you take it negatively on some items that you don't have any responsibility for. Whereas others, an underdeveloped conscience, have a responsibility, but they don't feel any of it or think that they do. They're oblivious to what God calls them to. If that's the case, that's on you. As we go through James, you got to sort that out in your own head, in your own mind. But the Bible tells us, and what James is about, is not to make you feel bad, but to make you whole, to make you mature, to make you complete. And sometimes, that does demand an honest appraisal of oneself. But one thing we can uh, really always come back to as we go through James is what we see here in verse 17, the conclusion. No matter what we're dealing as we go forward, let's start with verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Keep in mind as we study James, really what needs to be an anchor point in your Christian life, in my Christian life, are two fundamental things. You know, one, God is in control. But the second one, that God is good. That God is good. And that's why you can count a trial joy if you realize God is good, and that goodness, the gift He gives me is this opportunity for wholeness, for completeness, for maturity, and an expression of that love for me. He allows these trials so that I move in that direction Uh, that's why you can count it joy. It's not to make life miserable. That's how we interpret it. But that's not God's intent. that's, That's your stuff. So... The other one you can deal with on your own, and another tool I would say is temptations. Uh, same word, trials and temptations, same word, but it's applied, or it's, um, 
um, interpreted in English, trials and temptations based upon the context. You'll see their trials are coming from outside, whenever, unexpectedly. Trials, temptations are from the inside. It's when your desires are conflicted with God's best for you. It's when uh, temptations are when your desires um, are contradictory to this biblical understanding of wholeness and maturity and completeness in Christ. Things that get you to um, short-circuit what's best for you and the tendency to do that. But temptations need to be looked at as well as a tool. God, what does this temptation reveal about the longings of my heart? Let's pray. Father God, uh, such practical stuff. Thank you. Uh, I say this a little haphazardly uh, uh, for giving us these tools, particularly trials, because I know often I react to trials with anger and frustration like that bumper car. Uh, leave me alone. Stop it. I've had enough. Quit it. You don't like me. What's wrong with you? Uh, God, whatever our knee-jerk reaction, uh, may we start to see uh, underneath these trials, it's your desire that perseverance becomes a trademark of us. May we anchor uh, that in that you are good. And it seems painful for a moment, uh, God, to us. But you got something much bigger, much grander, that is hard for us to even imagine, that we could become transformed, that we could increasingly become whole, complete, and mature. Do your work in our midst, Lord. Amen.